As always, I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about animated fantasy films. Animation has always been a favorite of mine, and I like the escapism of it. I like the awe of it. Um, but a lot of the times, the animation is enough. I like when it's employed to tell a good story as well. How good the story is and how well it matches the animation, well, my guest Kurt Fitzpatrick is going to help me discuss that, and we're going to try and figure out who these movies are all for, if not just for children, and uh, what they've got to say if they have more to their minds than base spectacle. As usual, you should go into the podcast expecting coarse language, mostly from me, and spoilers for the six movies we'll be reviewing and then ranking. If you have feedback, I'd welcome that. You can send it to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca. You can hear Kurt on his podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark, which has recently celebrated its 200th episode. So lend them your ears. They're a riot. Now let's talk about some animated fantasy. I have Mr. Kurt Fitzpatrick back on the show. It's been a, a hot minute since you've been on Rank and Review, brother. I am so happy to have you back. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. I think it's been about a year and a half. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. But a lot I'm happens in a year man. and a half. <laughs> I'm talking about The Running Man and several other movies. Critters 2, the important Critters one. Critters 2, yeah, the <laughs> Easter. That's right, I, I, I think about you every Easter. So that, was, that was an official Easter movie. I don't know. I, I I might be crazy, but I think that Critters Two is an unsung movie of our youth. <laughs> it, yes, and I had not seen it uh, before that, so you, you provided me with that opportunity. Just one of the many services that Rank and Review provides. Uh, I I gave you options of what uh, to do for your next episode, and you chose animated fantasy. I'm curious why. Uh, what brought you to this list? Was it one of the movies, or is it the genre itself? The way I made this decision is I, I looked up all the movies, and I wanted to see how many were available to me for free. 
Right. And that's how, that's what guided my viewing process. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, 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 uh, that's the science that I chose to decide, but also, but it was a good, it's a good list. Um, I think there were a couple on there where I was like, I don't want to watch that movie, but, but this was, this was a list of movies. There was a couple of them I had seen when I was a kid. Um, and then some of them I'd never heard of. So yeah, this, this was worthwhile. Well, it hits a couple of strong beats from my childhood in the last unicorn and the secret of Nim. Um, but, uh, yeah. For for me, I, I think it brings up the discussion of not all of these movies are directed specifically at children, but I would say most of them are. And a lot of them have or are considered to have sharper edges for kids' movies. With the exception of maybe Ponyo, I would argue maybe all of these movies have moments that are pretty dark and hard for kids. Um, there seems to be two schools of thoughts. There's like protect your kids from everything you can for as long as you can, or give your kids some credit. They can handle things. So, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales were horror stories. You know, they, they deal with orphans and witches and scary things for a reason. Uh, do you think there is a line when it comes to children's entertainment? And do you think these movies cross it? Well, there's, I would say two of these movies were not made for for children, I can I can say what they are, right? Sure. Skip ahead and say, or should we wait? No, you go ahead. Let it go. And you know, uh, a kid might like it. And and uh, Bird Boy, the Forgotten Children, is would be a little hard on yeah. a child. They may have some oh. nightmares after that. Just the images. Yeah. My whole question about mind. Bird Boy when we talk yeah. about that will be like, who is this movie for? <laughs> I don't know, but it's it's I yeah. Yeah, I'll have I'll have some words about that. But it reminds me of years ago, um, we came out called Fritz the Cat with you know, the cat. It was the it's the R. Crumb character, and it was it was an X-rated movie. Yeah, X-rated animated movie. And my mom's friend uh, dropped her kids off at the movie theater to go see this <laughs> cartoon movie called Fritz the Cat. <laughs> they wouldn't let the kids in the theater. The kids were like stranded outside. Oh no. So sometimes it does get a little confusing, <laughs> but I would say with but I would say the one thing about Bird Boy is that it it did look and it was it was based on a graphic novel. Yeah, right? yeah, you're freezing a little bit there. You say it was it was uh, it was it was based on a graphic novel, and then I lost you there for a second, but you're back now. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it's based on graphicating that perhaps that's who the audience is. For right, them. people who would have been into the graphic novel. That's it's a pretty. It's a pretty yeah. narrow audience, unfortunately. Um, what do you? Where do you land on how scary or how dark do you think a movie for kids can go, though? How scary it can it can go? Uh, geez, I don't know. It depends on how scared how scared the kids can get. <laughs> it's it's hard to say. I mean, there there's definitely scary stuff in the Secret of Nim, but I guess I guess if I think about it as a kid, as long as it kind of ended on a on an okay note, I, I probably would have been all right. I, I would have gotten over what, whatever scary saw along the way. I um, remember if it, it just ended in apocalypse heart. Like, yeah. This animated feature introduced my kids to the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I remember as a kid, it's not a it's not a uh, animated movie, but my dad took me to see ET. Because in the 80s, you were a bad parent if you didn't take your kid to see E.T. 
And even though it all worked out in the end and E.T. lived and he got to go home, I was so upset by the, like, pseudo-death of E.T. and, like, the the scare and the drama of the movie that that was most of what I took out of the experience was that it was scary and sad. <laughs> I, to this day, don't think yeah, it's... Okay. I don't think it's one of Spielberg's best movies. I'm, I'm in that controversial field where I get why people love E.T. I'm just not one of those people. <laughs> But uh, I do think that kids have pretty right. strong backbone and that they can handle more than we give them credit for. But just because they can handle it doesn't necessarily mean that they should be subjected to something traumatizing before they're ready for it either, you know. There is truth to letting yeah. kids be kids. Um, well, I remember watching as a kid, this is also not an animated film, but I remember watching Willy Wonka and as a kid and really understanding how subversive it was. Like, I knew something was off here. <laughs> People were getting harmed in this movie, you know? I just, I was like, as a kid, I remember just being, like, sort of creeped. It may have been the first time I ever felt creeped out. Right. But yeah, there's there something happening there. Gene Wilder is yelling at me. There for the kids to see. <laughs> well, it wasn't just like the, the old people are all just, like, bedridden and, and it's... People are doing well. Yeah. Oh, the depiction of poverty, the depiction of, like I said, children being orphaned, it happens so often in fantasy movies. So uh, there's a wide field to choose from. Um, Before we get started, uh, I just wanted to shout out your podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark, which, congratulations, hit 200 episodes recently, you said? That's what what we hear. Yeah, that's what Podbeam is saying. Wow. We've been doing it for over five, well, about about five years, I think, yeah. That's impressive. Congratulations for that. Well, this is my 10th season of Rank and Review we're starting here. Oh, wow. Congratulations to you. (laughs) Look at us patting each other on the back. If there's nothing else, I'm going to list the movies we're going to rank and we can uh, get this thing on the road. Sounds good? So, the six animated fantasy yep. movies that Kurt Fitzpatrick and myself, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, are going to review. The Last Unicorn, uh, with music by America. Uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Beowulf. Uh, it's interesting how people seem to have forgotten that Beowulf existed. This is from Robert Zemeckis, and it's written by uh, Neil Gaiman and... Uh, uh, Roger Avery, co-writer of Pulp Fiction. And it's like an adaption of one of the oldest fantasy tales that we are aware of exists. And uh, yeah, it's just, it'll be an interesting conversation. Bird Boy, The Forgotten Children, which you mentioned a little bit in this introduction. Maybe the darkest movie on this list. Uh, from Heo Miyazaki, a favorite filmmaker of mine, uh, Ponyo. And we'll finish it off with the PG-13 animated 80s feature, The Secret of Nim. Thank you so much once again for being here, man. My pleasure. Celebrating 25 years of the timeless fantasy classic, The Last Unicorn. Unicorns? I thought they only existed in fairy tales. I tell you, there is one unicorn left in the world. I am the only unicorn there is. She was the last of her kind. Now she is on a quest to find others like herself. Experience the magic of the most enchanted adventure 
of a lifetime. Featuring the voice talents of Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Angela Lansbury, and songs performed by America. Now in a 25th anniversary widescreen special edition DVD with newly remastered picture and sound. It's a treasured fantasy classic of incomparable charm. What if there isn't a happy ending at all? There are no happy endings because nothing ends. Based on the book by Hugo Award winner Peter S. Beagle, The Last Unicorn. 25th Anniversary Special Edition DVD. Coming to DVD February 6th, 2007. So, uh, The Last Unicorn is a movie that I saw and quite enjoyed when I was a little kid. But I do think that, I don't know if it's holding its it, sort of reputation over time. I know it's based off of a book that's quite popular. And uh, in some ways it's right up my alley, but in other ways it was uncomfortably feminine. <laughs> There's a real romantic angle to The Last Unicorn. Uh, so as right. a kid especially, I really enjoyed particularly the first half of the movie where we're introduced to the fantastical creatures, uh, Schmendrick, the not-so-great magician, and, uh, you know, this unicorn who has been, is immortal and has been alone so long, she's starting to wonder where all the other unicorns are, and she goes on this quest to find them. And it's from Rankin-Bass, who uh, these animators who produced a lot of, like, Christmas stop-motion animated films from the 60s and 70s, and uh, this is them trying to be more modern and relevant in the 80s and competitive. Um, but there are weird, strange ends to the movie in that sometimes it's overtly silly and outlandish and kid-like. And other times it's kind of weirdly dark and sexual and adult in a way that maybe could be a step or two over the line. I think that that's part of what drew me into it as a kid, that there was some weird stuff. The the harpy has three breasts, and the there's a, a tree that gets brought to life that seems to be interested in Schmendrick in a more-than-friends kind of way. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it felt a little bit sort of pushing, boundary-pushing, even as, as a little kid. So that stuff I still like. That stuff, I think, makes the movie stand out and is interesting. I'm not as big on the second half of the movie uh, when we get to the castle and the sort of romantic storyline. And there are songs throughout the movie, but it seems in the second half it almost becomes a musical. We go from song to song to song, and I think we start to lose some of the story beats. I have a nostalgic connection to it because of how much I enjoyed it as a kid, but... Uh, I don't want to oversell The Last Unicorn. I think that it has a very sort of specific audience, and if you're in that audience, you probably already know, and you've probably already seen it. But where do you start on The Last Unicorn? Well, I also saw this when I was a kid, and actually the reason why I remember Jeff Bridges' character, I forget what his name was. Actually, I can tell you what his name was. Uh, the Jeff Bridges character, who was Prince Lear, um, King Haggard's adopted son, he's writing a love letter to the unicorn, who's now a woman, and he's crumbling up, and he says, damn, yeah. and that was a shocker for me. <laughs> I had never heard a cartoon character swear. That's right. So I remember being, 
being shocked by that. So I, that's why I, I know I saw this movie as a kid because I, I just relived that watching it again. I saw him walk up the steps and saying, damn. Yeah. But yeah, I, um, I did enjoy, I, I enjoyed watching darker elements. It, the actual animation aspect of it is not, wasn't as interesting. It was animated films where there was like a, almost like a still shot. I mean, I don't know much about how they make animation, but it seemed like artists and they'd have some animated things going on in front of it. It seemed less, less interesting than some of these, some of these other movies that we, that we will discuss. Well, I did like that music. I did like the music. Um, you, you said it was America, right? Yeah. Yeah. The band you America know. supplied, I think eight songs for the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the last unicorn. Yeah, uh, Man's Road and The Last Unicorn stand out, but a lot of the other songs really don't for me. But uh, I'm not a musical type of guy, so maybe it's just... uh, For me, I just wanted to get back to the monsters and the quest and the story a lot of the times whenever the songs kicked in. And as far as the animation you were saying, yeah, I agree. We have this sort of painted background and then the animated figures sort of walking on top of these painted backgrounds in a way that's kind of noticeable in some of the scenes. But I think that like this generation of kids growing up on Pixar and stuff are kind of spoiled. This was pretty good spectacle to me in the 80s. Again, part of what's making it show its age is that, uh, yeah animation is much more impressive but i do think it absolutely fits in for the time it was made like it didn't look bad for the time it was made anyway no it looks it looks uh, good i mean there's some there's some pretty violent scary stuff like there's the big crow beast that like eats the eats the woman alive pretty much and the harpy that's the harpy yeah the harpy yeah yeah, and uh, that old crone who runs the fair, who I thought was kind of creepy when a kid, is actually voiced by Angela Lansbury, and I usually associate her with... Really? Yeah, she usually plays sweet, friendly characters. Oh, I see that, yeah. M- Mommy Fortuna. Yeah. Yes, Angela Lansbury, okay. <laughs> uh, it does have an interesting voice cast, although as much as it's uh, against my good nature to say anything bad about Jeff Bridges, I found Jeff Bridges uncharacteristically flat in this movie <laughs> apparently he volunteered to do the voice work for free i don't know if he liked rankin bass or he liked the book or whatever but he gave them their money's worth i guess <laughs> okay <laughs> i felt weird. he was a little bit flat but most of the other voices were quite strong and uh yeah what do you think about the turn like it starts as a quest movie and then she finds the red bull which has driven all of the other uh unicorns into the sea and they're still they're immortal yeah. creatures, so they're still alive out there somehow. Uh, but in order to protect her, Schmendrick turns her into a woman, and then the sort of quest part of the movie stops, and then it becomes them living in Hagrid's palace, and uh, you know this romance between uh, the unicorn and the Jeff Bridges character, and her forgetting her her identity and all of that. Like, did it feel like two different movies to you, or does it belong to each other? I guess so. Well, it, and that was different. It took a shift when she's no longer a unicorn and she's a woman. And she's very emo and very moody. And <laughs> she doesn't, she generally even thinks she speaks to uh, Jeff Bridges. So he's, he's like really frustrated. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, he's really trying. He's slaying dragons for her, doing all of the things that a knight's supposed to do. And she's not really... Well, she's yeah. mysterious and aloof, which is part of the attraction, I suppose, but... <laughs> yeah, she's she's just despondent and... I mean, just... Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a shift with uh, that, yeah. I guess it's a little bit of a, a, a romance, but not not a very successful one. Yeah. I do think that the first half of the movie still remains much more interesting than the second half of the movie. Um, I want to say, was it Mia Farrow that voiced the unicorn? Yes. Yeah, it was, yeah. I don't know. I like Mia Farrow as an actress, but I, I don't know if it's the way it's written, but there's something strange about the performance. I understand that she's been a, a, a unicorn most of her life and she's just getting used to being a person, but it's, I don't know, there's something in the delivery right. of her. It's overly earnest. It's, uh, it, I know like it's a kid's movie or supposedly a kid's movie, but uh, some of the themes that they're touching on here is like, she's going to discard her entire immortal life because she's finally understood what love is. So, as a yeah. unicorn, did she not understand what love was, or did she just forget? I, I feel like there's a portion missing. They kind of simplified it for their audience, maybe. Okay. I liked... Uh, I've been a long-time fan of uh, Robert Klein, so yeah. I enjoyed him as the butterfly, just singing along, and, you know, that, <laughs> but that was the right... Uh, that was the right kind of role for him, I think. Yeah. Uh, and one of the weird sort of uh, big kitty kind of embellishments of the movie. Uh, he sings, he dances, he doesn't answer questions directly, but he's fun and he's silly. But, you know, as to why this butterfly has all the inside information about this world, we don't know. <laughs> but we no, don't we have don't know. to know. <laughs> he, no, and he doesn't overstay his welcome. He's he's in and out. Yeah. <laughs> so. Schmendrick, who is voiced by Alan Arkin... Uh, I I, yeah. I really enjoy his character in that he is a legit magician, but just trying to figure stuff out. But in a way, his ability to see the unicorn, Mama Fortuna has to put a false horn on the unicorn so that the people that come to see her show will recognize her as an actual unicorn. But Schmendrick knows right away. He sees her for what she is right away, which kind of legitimizes him as a magic user or magician. And right. uh, he commits to helping this creature. Like, he does not want her to be, you know, imprisoned by Fortuna. And uh, when magic doesn't work, he just steals the keys to bust her out. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I. I think that Schmendrick is probably the strongest character that we have and is a good central sort of person. We can't really access the unicorn because she's so immortal and above and better than everything. And King Haggard, voiced by Christopher Lee, is an interesting character, but mad, right? Like, not very accessible. I think... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's Schmendrick who helps us sort of get into the into the world and into the story. And definitely, okay. from from a little kid's perspective, I was always cheering for him. He would always screw up, or the spell would go slightly different than he wanted to, but you were always on side. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it was cool. So, so, there, so magic really does exist. You just have to be good at it. Yeah. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he, was, he was working on it. 
I got a little scared for the unicorn because he was trying to. I think he he was trying to like open up the open up the cage to get her out, but it started shrinking the cage. He's gonna like, squish claustrophobic, her. <laughs> claustrophobic experience. I, don't, I wouldn't want to see that. Yeah. Uh, little great details. The weird piratey cat that lives in the castle. I like the cat. Yeah. <laughs> Where the the laughing skull and bones that wants alcohol yeah. even though it can't drink anything. Uh, again, <laughs> it, it's sort of a strangely dark thing. Like, that's a that's a horrible fate. <laughs> you're still a skeleton, but you're sentient. You can you can want things, but you can't feel them anymore. Again, a dark it thing. Is, you know. Dark thing to try to sell to the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can't really drink, but you want to drink. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's tragic. (laughs) It's a tragic thing. Yeah, he's so happy. He's laughing and having a grand old time, so. Mad as a hatter. Um, Maybe it's so bad he doesn't know. He just doesn't know. So I'm a fan of the movie. Like, it's not going to rank at the top of the list or anything like that. But my question, I guess, will be... Do you think it's just for people like you and I who enjoyed it as a kid? Do you think it's got staying power? That like, in the kids who were raised on Kung Fu Panda or whatever nowadays, like, uh, does the Last Unicorn still have relevancy? Um, I think so. In terms of the storyline, it would. Do you think they would watch it in terms of like the style, the animation? Do you think they'd watch that and kind of enjoy it for being a, like a, a retro thing? They might enjoy it for the retro thing, or they might enjoy it for the more yeah. weird adult angles. Like I said, the yeah. the harpy has three breasts for some reason. That's a strange choice, but they made that choice, <laughs> you know. Right, and it's uh, a strong choice. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes to whether uh, kids would en- enjoy this now. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see why not. I, uh, I mostly enjoyed rewatching it, but I, I think I probably enjoyed it more as a child. <laughs> uh, there's sort okay. of this risk yeah. that you take when you revisit sort of things that were sacred to you as a kid. Uh, sometimes uh, it's better to leave them where they were. And I don't think this necessarily belongs there, but it's not the amazing thing that I thought it was when I was a kid. Okay. I don't think it was when I was a kid. I, I like I said, I don't think I found it groundbreaking, except for that experience of her hearing, hearing a cartoon character saying a swear word. So Damn. that made an impact. <laughs> yeah, it was a shock, and uh, oof, I know cartoon characters can do that. But um, yeah, that probably I guess for me that would have been one an, an earlier animated film I saw, especially like outside of like Disney films and something a little more edgy than that. Yeah. It's worth it. Check it out. If it sounds good to you or yeah. interesting to the listener, please give it a look. I don't want to talk anyone out of it. I just don't want to oversell it. Kubo! Kubo! Can you hear me, Kubo? Your village is burned to the ground. Your enemies aren't far behind. We need to go now. You have questions, I can tell. Who? You get three. Why only three? Okay, that was your first question. What? I don't understand what's happening. This is the beginning of your story. Your family is very powerful. Your mother used her magic to save you. Run! And bring me to life. What are we gonna do? We're going to find your father's armor. It's the only thing that can protect you. 
Many years ago, I was cursed. This great adventure is my destiny. Your magic is growing stronger. You need to learn control. Kubo and the Two Strings is a 2016 stop-motion animated feature. And I will start with this. It is beautiful. <laughs> it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. Part of what I've been looking for and appreciating with this fantasy animation set is the escapism. And um, right away, this movie pulls you into like a tiny, fragile boat on this ocean. A mother and her little baby are in terrible, terrible danger. And it is a visual spectacle. And we haven't necessarily seen this story before. This is all kind of new to us. And uh, it's kind of, at least initially, overwhelming. You have to kind of, at least I did, get used to the world that you were looking at and the spectacle that you're being presented with because <laughs> uh, it's different. It doesn't feel like a Pixar movie. It doesn't feel like a Disney movie. It's uh, tactile and alive in a way that uh, all animated movies, I guess, are, but that especially stop-motion animation manages to accomplish. They ended up uh, making it to this island, but the mother is badly injured, and little Kubo is uh, has lost an eye. He's got one eye. And we flash forward, and Kubo has to look after his damaged mother, and he makes his living as a performer and storyteller. And uh, he seems to have this fate, this uh, heroic destiny that he's... Uh, destined to fulfill and that these stories that he tells the crowds are sort of practice runs for that the characterizations throughout the movie as it gets progressively into that we have a a monkey character that's voiced by Charlize Theron who's also the voice of the mother and we have a beetle character voiced very enthusiastically by Matthew McConaughey but not necessarily in a distracting way and I think the creepiest uh, element of the movie are the sisters, which are all voiced by Rooney Mara. <laughs> uh, yes. Where Kubo can't be s spotted by moonlight, because then, you know, the fates that are after him will know where he is, and it will sort of start the chain reaction. And when they first appear to him, it, it's, it's genuinely kind of an unsettling moment. And, uh, yeah, I really, really was swept up in the movie and uh i don't think it's like too dark for kids but it is strange it does i think challenge them in that it's not the same story that they've been subjected to again and again it does have a little bit of that sort of video game plotting in that he's got this armor and these weapons that he has to acquire and so each level he conquers an obstacle and then he's rewarded with, you know, the next piece of the puzzle that's going to lead him to be able to have the big boss fight. There's familiarity, I guess, in that, but only in that, which makes the whole movie to me really kind of impressive. So I don't know if you can tell, I'm a big fan of Kubo loved it. and the two strings, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'd be happy to hear a second opinion. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I enjoyed it, too, especially, I mean, I agree, the animation was just beautiful. Uh, it was just, I remember just the very beginning, just noticing how how the ocean was just like, it was, we're coming onto the 
beach just washing on the shore and i was like wow like like just watching it like like how do they do that how do they cre- create that kind of uh detail and animation there was no um, water on set right <laughs> they did it i guess with... not i was like are they shooting a real ocean this like this is you know so no it really was it, it was a beautiful uh striking movie to watch and there's the two sisters they reminded me of those two little two little girls from the shining oh yes kind of had that that kind of the um Grady girls. Yeah, that's what that's what they. Yeah. The way they, they speak in unison. They yeah, all... they speak in unison, and they also just kind of the image, the way they had them set. I would I would take a guess to say there was some influence there, a little little bit of an homage there. It's them. funny you say that. It it, it kind of reminded me of the ghosts in Coraline, another stop motion animated movie. Have you ever seen Coraline? No. Uh, well, minor spoiler. There's some children ghosts in 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 Coraline, and I sort of like if. The child ghost could quote unquote grow up. The sisters might be what would they would end up being. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. if okay. you like Kubo, I I would wager pretty high amounts of money that you would like Coraline. It's based off of a Neil Gaiman uh, novel. It's stop motion and uh, same director of Nightmare on Before Christmas. It's worth your time. Anyway, we're here okay. to talk about Kubo. <laughs> Kubo, yeah. Yeah, Kubo, uh, it, it had a lot going for it. It had all different kind of characters. It had, you know, parents, relationship with parents, relationship, you know. There was the idea of loss as well, you know, losing a parent, also losing a parent while your parent's still alive. That was happening, yeah. you know, in the, the movie with, like, memory loss. That's, that's some heavy stuff. Um that was uh and you know also things that you were that they would, were kind of re- revealing as you were as you were watching it which is you know made things interesting maybe i should have seen things coming but not so much no. <laughs> but that's okay i enjoyed it more no well um yeah. <clears throat> like i said the structure is kind of familiar but the delivery isn't familiar necessarily yeah. um i think that in the about the end of the first act, things go really bad for Kubo. It starts really bad for Kubo, but he's just a baby. He doesn't really understand what's yeah. happening to him then. He lost his eye. Yeah. yeah, but when he's exposed to the sisters and, uh, you know, his mom is taken from him definitively and he wakes up alone, we kind of hit character bottom for him. That's when all of a sudden Beetle shows up. And it's kind of right in the nick of time right before things got too dark to be enjoyable for the kids. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, I think I thought, yeah. it's just well-placed because uh, Kubo needs a pep talk and he needs a laugh and he needs a smile and so does the audience at this time. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, was, that was a good relief. Yeah, it's it's uh, structured well. Mm. Really hard on the grandfathers on uh, this movie. Yeah, Ray really finds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tough on the grandfathers. Not much, uh, not much sympathy there. But because I was even wondering, I was like, "Ooh, hey kids, don't watch this with your grandfather." But but then but then they they kind of like um, made it work at the end. The grandfather forgot all the horrible things he did. Yeah, so that makes it okay. Pretended, and they just pretended. He- Man, speaking as somebody who uh, works in a drunk tank, the uh, but I don't remember it defense just doesn't fly with me. <laughs> I don't know. That's some sort of form of psychology. There, you said that it was some kind of psychology, and then I lost you for a minute there. 
Okay, so it was some kind of uh, psychology or some kind of uh, coping mechanism that they had. Right. And it's a nice thing to teach the kids that. (laughs) Yeah, if you didn't have a good experience with a a family member, just make up one. Yes. Poor Ray (laughs) Fiennes. Yeah. I feel like uh, he got, you know, Oscar nominated for Schindler's List and now he's like the go-to bad guy, but he can play really nice, likable characters. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> oh. There's sort of some Raiders of the Lost Ark stuff happening in this movie also. It reminded me of like the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark when yeah, Jonas gets that head, was it like a monkey head or something? And- right. You know, and then all, all all chaos is happening, and they had that they had that kind of thing happening as well. Like when he gets the sword, and the sword is a skeleton is crumbling down, and they had this like action adventure thing that was accelerating. Yeah, they they definitely keep things moving in that sort of over the top way, and they use the animation like. One thing that's kind of been strange in more modern animation is that there's like animated movies that seem like unnecessarily animated. It's like a bunch of a family having a discussion at the kitchen table and like <laughs> there's nothing uh, outlandish, there's nothing stylized about it. Like there's nothing that says this needed to be animated. Which right. isn't to say that this movie wouldn't stand on its own as text or as like a live action movie, but it uses the animation to the most of it to the to its best effect yeah yeah it 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 definitely it definitely accomplished things that you probably you you couldn't accomplish in a a, a live action movie i don't think no. unless you added the animation or, or cg well yeah. and you got a giant monkey and a giant beetle um yeah you, you worked throughout it would help with like turn itself into the uh into the soldiers and birds and, and all, all that kind of stuff the uh yeah, that that was that was that was uh, visually stimulating. The Charlies there on voices the mother and monkey. Yeah, the monkey. Um, <laughs> so like once mom is gone, she sort of like morphs into this monkey character. Like obviously it's a protective figure, and it's she's doing all the things that his mom wasn't able to do, but. Um, what did you think of that whole angle of the story? Like, what is Monkey... Like, the relationship between him and Monkey, is that what he wanted the relationship between him and his mom to truly be? Like, uh... Yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, I guess, you know, spoiler. We, we can give spoilers, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. The, the Monkey is the mom. Yeah. I, that, that was what I was talking about earlier. That's what I didn't see coming. I didn't, I didn't realize that. But the Monkey definitely was... Uh, motherly... She was, was, she was strict, and then she was, you know, caring for him, him, him as well. Um, so what was the question? What did I think of, like, his... Well, of, of, uh, I thought for me the tell was that they used the same voice. Like, Charlize Theron was the voice yeah. of his mom and yeah. the monkey. Um, but I guess, I mean, it worked, but do, did you think that relationship worked? Or, like, it was one of the things about... It was an interesting element of the plot, but I'm not sure what note was being played or, like, as a child, what I would have made of the monkey being his mom at the end. <laughs> I... What I thought... Yeah, I mean, it was... What, what, how, how would I have responded if I was a child watching it? Probably just enjoying a little monkey character because I like that, but... <laughs> But I did think, but I do, I did understand that he had a prior relationship with the monkey because the monkey was this 
charm that he had been carrying around. Yeah. So, um, so I did have an I did have an understanding that there was some kind of relationship there. It was, I, I didn't I didn't realize it was his mom. Yeah. But it wasn't like a stranger, even though it was. That's a you know you don't have much of a relationship with a with a figurine you're carrying around, but you know you you got something. If you, if I mean, it's... look, I've, look at the gut right here. I can show you. I have a I have a this is a Funko of Steve from Stranger Things. Well, there you go. And this thing came alive. You know, we 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 would we wouldn't be starting at square one. We have some kind of relationship here. But if it's a Funko that just sits on your desk or whatever, it's sort of like a little prop. But if it's something you carry on your person your entire life, yeah. it almost becomes an affect of your personality. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what else to say other than to gush, man. Like it's a solid adventure. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's, uh, not it's familiar but in in a, in its presentation sort of definitely earns its individual points like it's one of those I, rare movies that it's like I can't think of a good reason anyone wouldn't get something out of it you might not love it like I do but I can't imagine anyone hating kubo <laughs> you know no and i wanted to, i wanted to point out that there was it was really beautiful there were scenes with facial expressions of the monkey were uh, there's you just see like the like the caring and the just the just the, the change of emotions that they were sh- showing in that. It, it's always impressive to see an animated warmth. character yeah. thinking, and we get that right. with monkey. Yeah, there was like warmth because it started. Monkey kind of started out as kind of a hard, strict, hard character. Yeah, strict, strict character, and then there's just like this this warmth that comes on. And it's just done like so. It's a very slight alteration of the expressions. It was really well. No, every... I would I would assume they worked with some actors. I'm sure they probably had some actors working, you know, just observing yeah. somebody for that. Well, I mean, Charlize Theron seems to know what she's doing. Matthew McConaughey. I mean, I know he's make fun of a bow, but he does. He, you know, he can act. Yeah, and the other thing. That, I'd like to say something about the song. They had they use that George Harrison song. While my guitar gently weeps from yeah, uh, Regina Spector. Yeah. Regina Spector, yeah. That was great. Yeah. Well, I love that song and I like that artist, so that was a pretty easy sell to me. Although kind of a strange choice for the movie, I guess, like uh it's a, a much more modern st- song for a much kind of an ancient feeling story, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, but, worth it. <laughs> yeah. Good enough? Yeah. Are you the one they call Beowulf? Such a strong man you are. A man like you could own the greatest tale ever sung. Beowulf, stay with me. Give me a son, and I shall make you the greatest king that ever lived. This, I swear. You will forever be king. Forever strong. Mighty. 
What are you? What a strange career Robert Zemeckis has had. I mean, he's always wanted to be right on the cutting edge of special effects and, uh, like, filmmaking and sort of pushing the form. And sometimes it really pays off for him. Like, uh, I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I will always love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The Back to the Future trilogy is a kind, and kind of, especially that first movie, the kind of immortal cinema in a lot of ways. Like, I am not the biggest Forrest Gump guy, but I get why people love Forrest Gump. I think it's a three-star movie instead of a five-star movie, but... How dare you. How dare you. Um, I, I love Castaway. I think, uh, but he got into this... I want to sort of push animation and uh, be again on the cutting edge of this as he had for all of these other times in his sort of creative life. But the problem with his, he did the Polar Express, he did Beowulf, he did A Christmas Carol. At the time they come out, they do look amazing and they are at the tippity top of the form. But the form moves so quickly nowadays that Beowulf uh, as impressive as it was when it came out in 2007, sort of looks like cutscenes from a video game a little bit when you're watching it now. You can tell that a real filmmaker made it in the organization of the shots and the, the casting. Like They definitely noticed the awesomeness of Ray Winstone before anyone else, and it was kind of interesting to affect Ray Winstone's powerful voice and energy into this animated figure who doesn't look really anything like Ray Winstone at all. Whereas, like, some of the other characters, Anthony Hopkins looks like Anthony Hopkins, you know. Uh, Malkovich looks like Malkovich. <laughs> Angela jo- right. Jolie looks naked. <laughs> yeah, but, she's the siren. Yeah, but again, this is a strange one. And like another movie we're going to be talking about, I guess because they went so hard and violent and epically sort of dark with it, it sort of becomes, well... Who's the movie for after a certain point? Like, the kids are going to have to stay at home because of the level of violence. But the level of silliness and uncanny valley is probably going to keep a lot of the adults out of the theater, too. And the older it gets, the more the flaws are very obvious. And the more the really good stuff, which I do think that there is, people tend to gloss over. I love Crispin Glover's portrayal of Grendel, the the creature that comes and slaughters all of the people in the kingdom and who Beowulf is hired to kill. Uh, seems really sensitive to sound and communicates mainly through screams, but I really feel Crispin Glover giving this performance through the animation. And in scenes that work in the movie, I think it really shows what this kind of animation can do. But... I think that Beowulf will sort of be just that, that marker in the sand. This is where we were in 2007. So if you want to see what 2007 cutting-edge rotoscoping animation looks like, here it is. But five or ten years later, you know, there's more life behind the character's eyes. And there's more uh, details that take it a little bit out of the uncanny and into that sort of 
consistent world. It doesn't have to be a real world. It just has to be consistent enough that we buy it. So I like Beowulf, but I want to love it. Like, if I saw this movie when I was 12 or 13, it would have blown my mind. (laughs) So, like, I can't outright dismiss it, but um, it's just one of Robert Zemeckis' sort of strange experiments. I will say of the uh, animated movies that he spent 10 years of his career working on, this is my favorite of those three, but um, considering where he came from... (laughs) Zemeckis, yeah. you know, has yeah. done better. He's done better movies than this. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Robert Zemeckis is such a genius that I would, if I met him, I would, like, take a flashlight and look in, into his ear <laughs> to see if I could somehow make out the genius in there. It's like, my God. Um, that he's done great work. And he's done, like, a, a different kinds of work, you know? Like, in the early days, he directed the... Well, he wrote... With, with Bob Gale, I believe he, they wrote 1941. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, he directed a couple of movies early on, and then he did. Yeah, Back to the Future is one of my all-time favorite movies. Well, I think Romancing the Stone was what put him on the map as a director. Uh, that was another one, yeah. Which was yeah. basically a copycat in Raiders of the Lost Ark at the time, but it made a lot of money and it got him to, in a position to make Back to the Future. And after that, the rest was history. <laughs> so. Sure was, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a, a far scump. There is slight backlash. It's, I love I don't want to take your love of Forrest Gump away from you. It's not my job. It's a, it's, it's, really close to get to being schmaltzy so i can get it, it just it almost gets schmaltzy but no, i don't quite hit i don't think it quite hits that right. i think it, i think it, i think that was a really tricky movie to make work and they really made that work yeah well uh, i would love to get into forrest oh, gump but uh, i will fall down a rabbit day. hole if i go into forrest gump yeah, yeah. and again i think it's a three-star movie i think it's a good movie i just don't think it's one of the greatest movies of the 90s you know like the fact that it won over pulp fiction and shawshank redemption just makes me want to pull my eyes out of my face <laughs> but uh, all right <laughs> but uh uh it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. And I appreciate that he experiments. And, I, and you know, when you experiment, you fail. He did this recent uh, Pinocchio movie, which I shouldn't speak on because I haven't seen. But by all accounts, is not very good. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Uh, but Beowulf. strange choices Beowulf. are in Beowulf. Like, what was with the scene? Okay, like, we want to establish he's the greatest kick-ass, badass hero ever. Like, I get that. And, like, he can swim across the ocean while fighting sea creatures. And they show us that in a really wonderfully over-the-top animated sequence. Great. But then he decides just to take it up an extra level. He's going to fight Grendel naked. And they have this entire fight sequence with this, like, Austin Powers kind of sort of humor where they're going out of their way to obscure the nudity. Strangely, yeah. this scene happened yeah. again in a recent movie called The Northman, to the point where it just becomes like distracting and ridiculous. But it's a fun yeah. scene, it's a fun air quote scene, and I like the action in it, but it is also ridiculous. And this movie seems to be unashamed to occasionally just go as hard and ridiculous as possible, sometimes to its benefit and sometimes to its detriment. Yeah, and, and they definitely present Beowulf as a character. They present him as a hero, but like a flawed hero. They make it 
clear that he is exaggerating in some of his uh, heroicness. He would almost have to be. But then when we see yeah. what he can do, he's pretty impressive during these fights. Yeah. <laughs> so. so he doesn't have to lie, but he's making some stuff up. Now, this is definitely a movie that young people are seeing. Yeah. Because, I, you know, people get assigned this in when they're in high school, and they're, I'm sure they're, they're watching this. <laughs> I haven't read the reading. original yeah. text, or I guess it's transcribed, because it was originally an oral tale or whatever, but um, I'm going to guess that some liberties were taken here. <laughs> well, what I heard, because I, I got to watch a behind-the-scenes, I actually got the DVD of this. Oh, you have a DVD also. I do. Yeah, so they have the behind-the-scenes stuff, and uh, Neil Gaiman, I think he was saying, they were talking about, you know, because Beowulf was, was a, a story told from the years with oral uh, orally told because they didn't even like write down it was a story before they even wrote down stories when they finally started writing it down they said it was the monks these religious monks were writing it down so they so the monks left out some of the some some things that they you know that they didn't like that weren't in line with their beliefs so Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery uh, they they put back in what they assumed was originally in right so the of violence and all, all kinds of stuff. Well, yeah. and it does have that sort of pleasing, you know, Conan bar maiden. <laughs> you know, they like to eat meat off the bone and drink, you know, beer out of big, huge mugs and and carouse and are rowdy dude bros, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, it wasn't very... It wasn't very progressive no. in terms of... Uh, male-female relationships. <laughs> um, but, you know, back then, things probably were pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty Actually, ruling. Which puts me in mind of Robin Wright, because uh, she plays the uh, woman who's married to the Anthony Hopkins character, who, uh, Anthony Hopkins is given a full-bore performance here, and as much as he's full of fun and energy, you really get the feeling like he wouldn't be a great guy to be married to. But, interestingly, Robin Wright went on like 10 or 15 years later to do this movie called Robin Wright at the Congress. And the conceit of that movie is that actual actors sign over their image so that their, their body is scanned and their, their features are scanned. They do this uh, performance where they do all these different range of emotion emotions. And then the studio owns them and they can plug them into any movie that they want to use for any character, be it porn, be it action, be it whatever. Robin Wright can live her life, and they have this avatar, Robin Wright, that they can use to make movies. That's the conceit of the movie. And as she was being interviewed for that, she kind of said, that happened to me. They scanned my entire body, and they scanned my <laughs> performance when they made Beowulf. And that, that image still exists somewhere. That All of that computer information on Robin Wright is still out there. Oh, so she's afraid that they will use this, well, this, this uh, images and stuff. Or she's just aware that that could happen. It's just an interesting thing that she ended up doing both of these movies. Because one seems to be almost oh, a okay. comment yeah. on the other. Um, unfortunately... Okay. So as she it, actually voluntarily went through this. This that, other movie you're talking about, she had, it was... It's like her actually going through this whole thing. That's right. Yeah. The whole 
process, yeah. Yeah, and in the movie she plays Robin Wright, which is what makes it interesting. Like, Robin Wright is selling her avatar to Hollywood. So it's not a documentary? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's no, a okay. science fiction movie, and it's oh, half okay. animated. I've never heard of that. Yeah, Robin Wright at the Congress. It's an interesting movie. Wow. Uh, it's a strange, weird connection that I made when I was watching this. It's also funny because this in this movie, unfortunately, it's a very typical Robin Wright role in that she's really good actress and she's doing what she can but there's just not a lot to the part which seems to be right. her fate zemeckis likes her of course she was jenny in in forrest gump and uh, again i do think she's one of these actresses who she's a little bit pigeonholed because she was in a few classics right she was in the princess bride and she was in forrest gump and so that's what people see her as and I think Robin Wright has serious games, so <laughs> I would put her in my movie. Yeah. Okay. She, yeah, she might be up for that. Um, now, what do you think was the motivation for even, like, making this movie? Because I, I watch it, and I think, if I, like, just randomly saw a clip of it, I might not even think it's animated at first, <laughs> you know? Because it looks... It depends. It depends, like, what scene I was watching. But I might just think, oh... Or, or I might, I might even think that by thinking like, well, why, like, why even animate this? I know from watching the behind the scenes thing that it was moving, that their shoot moved a lot quicker. Yes. That they were able to be like way more efficient. So maybe that was it. Maybe it was kind of experiment. Well, I do think that that was part of it. Like I said, Zemeckis is trying to push the film genre and he has done so successfully in the past. Like I said, Roger Rabbit was a game changer at the time. And I do think will be a kind of an immortal movie. And I think he's looking yeah. for ways to do that again. For whatever flaws Beowulf has, I mean, it's ambitious. Let's give it that much. And I do think it's the kind of movie only Robert Zemeckis could force into being, you know? I, I want to make this right. expensive, rotoscoped, CGI monster movie with a hard R. <laughs> and, like... Okay. Like, again, so, stacking the deck so against say, yourself. Yeah. So Zemeckis is very comfortable being in post then. That's that's what's going on. I guess. He's doing most of his work in post. And that's just amazing. See, that's a real genius. I mean, most people can't pull that out because he's got to be able to see. So in, when he's in, when, he, when he's actually producing the movie, when he's in the of the movie he can see ahead of it he can he can see ahead how this is all going to serve him in post which is well, you know, while he's actually making the movie actually shooting the movie he can, he can see already, it he, yeah yeah while he's shooting it he can see ahead of time like how he's going to be handling this in the post-production which i assume the post-production would period than the actual production of it oh it's with a movie like this guaranteed more involved. yeah yeah, yeah. i wouldn't know where to say i, I wouldn't know where to start no. I mean, there's probably not a lot of people who could make a movie like this like well and that's why i i respect I it i mean i don't think it 100 percent works but i have a lot of respect right. for it and and basically it's the same way i feel about zemeckis like this is a guy when he was making castaway uh tom hanks had to lose a lot of weight so tom hanks took i think eight months to lose the weight and in the time in between zemeckis shot what lies beneath he made another movie while he was waiting for this one to eat. uh right. he did a, a live action movie of man on wire about the french ex uh, 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 performer who strung a line between the two towers of the world trade center and walked it 
And he shot it so well that in IMAX footages of the movie, people were fleeing the theater and getting vertigo and throwing up. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's like, if Zemeckis' name is on it, it's worth watching. I mean, I'm sure even, I haven't seen this Pinocchio movie. I guarantee you it's not, you know, incompetent in its execution. It's probably a script problem or just uh, why is this movie being made kind of problem. And like the the whole Disney live action remake is being viewed very suspiciously lately. And I think this movie is part of why. But I congratulate him for trying to push the medium forward. And I like that he was telling the story. Again, 13-year-old Larry, this is the greatest movie ever made, you know. Larry in his 40s, I get it, I like it, but, it, it, you know, again, it's it's 2007, and uh, the eyes look a little soft and unfocused, and um, it's just where animation was then. That's the that's the catch when you're at the, the edge of the technology. The edge just keeps moving. Yeah, I, I think it was, I, I am, this was a movie that I was aware of, I had not seen it before. I don't know if I would have, um, just because I just didn't. There's only so much time. Oh yeah, yeah. So I love Crispin Glover. It's also interesting because Crispin Glover at one point had a had a lawsuit, a successful lawsuit against, I think, maybe not specifically Robert Zemeckis, but it was he had, he had a lawsuit against like they. He wanted more money for Back to the Future 2. They wouldn't give it to him, so they hired another actor but used his likeness. So right. he his lawsuit made it impossible for any other filmmaker to do that again. <laughs> yeah. So but obviously Zemeckis didn't take yeah. it personally. So No, no. So I thought that was... I, I remember thinking that was interesting. But no, I, I, I'm glad that I saw this movie. I... For, I guess it's not just up my alley in terms of my interest, but I never saw the Polar Express, and I never saw the... I haven't seen Pinocchio. Well, I saw uh, Flight. You saw, I saw flight. flight. There you go. It, it had moments. Uh, <laughs> no. It is very interesting to see this in terms of just the experiment that it is, and the spectacle of it, I guess. That Angelina Jolie is the, uh, the irresistible... S- iron oh yeah i think that it does give you your money's worth in the spectacle and it is loud and proud and over the top in a deliberate way it's not like it doesn't know that it's going at a hundred percent the whole time so it it appreciate i appreciate that it knows what it is um i do think that some people will find it a little bit much (laughs) yeah You just don't understand him. Bird Boy has a demon inside. How do I help you? Tell me. I'll hunt you down. The only thing that really scares me is the thought of being stuck on this island forever. We need a boat. Hi, kids. When you learn to fly, will you take me with you? 
All right, welcome to easily the strangest movie in this list. <laughs> Bird Boy, The Forgotten Children is a post-apocalyptic animated film with a bunch of cute animals that look like they've been pulled off of some charming, you know, toddler cartoon that you'd watch on Treehouse. Uh, you know, there's the little bunnies and little puppies and little foxes and the titular bird boy. And uh, there's an explosion at the factory on this island and it has destroyed the environment and blasted the land and everybody is still trying to live their lives as normal even though this change has taken place and there's a group of kids that are trying to leave their homes to try and find a better life either off this island or or, or some sort of sane normal place on it and wow i mean the two big questions that I will have, and, and, and I don't even know that I have answers for you, Kurt, right out of the gate, is who is this yeah. movie for, number one, and what is this movie about, number two? Like, you could say it's about environmental things, you could say it's about uh, d children dealing with death, you could say it's about the battle between the youth and authority, or youth and parents, they... There's a little bit of racism. There's one little fox character who seems to be like the sweetest, nicest kid, but because he's the smallest, he's just made fun of and belittled by all of the other ones. Like, it's about everything, and it's kind of about nothing. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's all over the place. It's definitely got a very distinct, strong identity. Like, it's it's individual. <laughs> like, you can't compare it to anything else. No. But, yeah. like, it's so out there strange. And I don't know what a kid would make of it. It would just melt their brain and break their heart and then send them to bed crying. <laughs> <laughs> this is usually the type of movie that I can really, really get behind, too. Like, I like these sort of complicated animated films that are about the death of childhood or the death of innocence that, in a way, are more effective to adults than to the kids that they're being made for. But I don't know, this might have gone a little bit further even than that. <laughs> so I guess I'm at the place where I want to like and understand the movie, but where I sit right now, I kind of don't. Like, I'm just mystified by it. But uh, I don't think it deserves the fate it was given because they spent a lot of money on it and it bombed. I mean, again, I don't know who the audience was for it or what they thought was going to be the result. But, yeah, a lot of, I think, very talented people made this very distinct vision and it laid an egg. <laughs> so, I don't think wow. it deserves to be dismissed. I would encourage people to watch it. But I have a hard time describing it or even saying, like, what about it works for me and what about it doesn't. I think in its own way, it's just distinctness makes it worthy of attention somehow. <laughs> what any one yeah. individual will make out of it, uh, it depends on who you are and where you are, I think. And maybe that is, at the end, the strength of the movie. It, it, can, it can mean what you need it to mean on that day, I guess. But, again, That's much like sure. Beowulf, it's ambitious, but I'm not sure what it achieved. So, help me out, Kurt. <laughs> yes. Well, if I heard that description, I wouldn't want to watch it immediately. Okay, I'd good. i see what this is all about. <laughs> but 
I did enjoy this movie just because it was so weird and the images were very striking too. It was it, this, I thought this was also a beautiful film in a whole different way, you know? So I, I enjoyed that, but yes, no, I would, I would give high praise this movie. My feeling is I want to watch, I like, I want to watch this again. Right. I want to see this again. Give it some time <laughs> and then go around too. Kind of. Because I don't, because it's, it is, there are scenes in it that are just disturbing. Like they're going to torture one of the kids. The, you know, it's, it's like they're, they're getting ready to, to, to do that. And it's like, oh no. Uh, yeah. There's but dark. I'm, I'm all for this. Yeah. It's a dark stuff, but I'm all for it. I, <laughs> I just, I, I enjoy, um, they took some big swings here. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate that. And it didn't, I guess, I guess on the whole, I'm trying to think of the right, trying to arrive at the right word here, but, um, just the, all the elements put together as, as a, as a full narrative movie, maybe it didn't all add up, you right. know, as well as it, as it should have. Um, I, but this, but I certainly enjoyed the risk and yeah, I, I do agree with you. Like who is the audience? And that's probably the reason why it wasn't <laughs> successful. I'm saying here, Wikipedia, it was made for, doesn't say $1 million. seems to say 1 million pounds, maybe. And then it made 54,845. Yeah, that's um, not good. That's, no, no. And I don't know. It's definitely the audience is not kids because kids are being tortured and killed, running away from home and uh, just... Stealing uh, drugs from their parents uh, and giving them out to their friends. Stealing drugs. They're distributing drugs along the land. They run into the old mouse who's had broken dreams i found that depressing <laughs> well and bird boy himself his father has died and he's being hunted he's this sort of weird ghostly looking figure and he has to take these pills or else he has the nightmares so yeah drug yeah. abuse add that to the list of things this movie might or might not be about but his nightmares that he has are genuinely troubling <laughs> But the fact that the only thing that will save him from those nightmares is drug addiction is genuinely troubling. And, like, it's not yeah. resolved. Like, <laughs> he lives a it's miserable for... life. <laughs> well, this is a movie for, uh, you, you know, you, you can't make movies like this on this scale, but it's kind of like a midnight movie. It's like an oddity. Yeah. That's, but, you know, you, you're not, those kind of movies, they're not going to make huge box office people don't make a movie to be that way it yeah. becomes that you know well and again it's not a if you're doing an animated film it's not going to be cheap and if you're doing an animated film right. on abstraction you're going to limit your audience so you know that's why we don't get lots of movies like waking life i love waking life if you've ever seen richard oh, yeah. yeah i have uh, yeah I love that movie, but I get why, you know, it didn't start like this flow of, you know, adult-oriented animated philosophical vignettes because nobody's lining up for that. <laughs> so I guess we have to respect that this movie exists. I do. I'm giving it high marks because I really had to say, well, what movie really affected me the most? I Like I said, I appreciate the images. I do like that... 
characters. Uh, like you were saying, there's these cute little funny rabbits <laughs> putting this like ap- apocalyptic horror. I mean, listen, if I'm going to see something that I've never seen before, I'm here for it. Yeah, and yeah, this is definitely individual. You have not seen this before. And the rendering of the explosion, like, and all of the people at the plant are in, instantly, like, disintegrated. But they show it wash out across the lands and the devastation that it wreaks. I also had to, yeah. And that's where we start. That's that's where the movie starts. But there's also, I, I mean, I didn't make too many notes, but there was a, at one point, and it's almost like a throwaway thing, like the mother, the mother of the bunny holds like this, like a Jesus squeeze doll and squeezes it and blood is coming from its eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's where we get to some of like, again, I'm being positive, but there are things in the movie that just make me wonder, like, why was that there? What does this scene mean? Like, there are scenes that... uh, like the kids are going to try and break away from the, their world and try to establish a new life. But then they have the isolated scenes, like you say, with the old fo- fellow <laughs> and his terrible story. Um, and the the uh, other children being taught to shoot by the militaristic sort of apparatus. And the to go to spoiler territory, very sudden death of Bird Boy towards the end of the movie where he's shot out of the sky by a kid who fished, doesn't... And he's fished out of the, the, the sea. Yeah. But the kid who shoots him didn't particularly want to do it. He was just, you know, <laughs> following orders. And I don't know... He, it's a kid's, or a, a, it, because it's an animated movie, my brain kept on wanting to treat it like a kid's movie. And I just kept on asking, like, what does this mean? And I kept on coming up empty. And, like, some of the stuff, yes, but a lot of the stuff, no. And if I get enough of that, I'm not sure why it's here. This is a non sequitur. I start to question whether or not the, the creators had an answer. I don't mind if it's a little bit sort of mysterious or if you're going to hold your cards close to the chest, but I want to believe that you as the creator have an answer. And I suspect that sometimes they did, but sometimes maybe they did not. Okay. I think I give some leeway because I, I, I do enjoy apocalyptic stories, or at least I, I have. And I guess... I guess I see it in terms of like if there's an apocalypse, it's like then the rules, the Change. rules have changed, you know. Yeah. So I get so I kind of give it, I guess you could say, leeway in that in that sense. And who's who's to say? Maybe everybody's half crazy, and you know, uh, because of this the, the survival situation that they're in, we have to sort of take everything yeah. with a grain of salt. But yes, it is very adult in all of its themes in that way, which is strange for a movie about little talking bunny rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I like it. I just don't know where to sit on it. Like I, I. I will watch that's, it that's again. I need to watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. And I will watch, I it, watch again. it again. And that's sort of maybe the reason that in the end we'll end up in a positive place. <laughs> Excuse me. Like uh, every now and then when I feel like watching something visual that's going to like that I know will stimulate me at least in that level, which is part of the big appeal of animation. And but I got enough brain cells working around upstairs that I want to try and solve a puzzle. 
I will come back to it. It's not obtuse. And if I came off that way, I, I didn't mean to. I mean, if it was uh, an animated movie that was just about nuclear uh, devastation, it would be When the Wind Blows, right? There's that British animated movie or, or The Grave of the Fireflies. And those are both really devastating and depressing. I, I Not that this movie isn't devastating or that it isn't depressing, but it's more interesting and beautiful than it is devastating and depressing. So, right. points. Yes. Uh, I don't know what else to say about Bird Boy because I don't know what else to say about Bird Boy. You got anything else for me, brother? I think we sold it. Okay. I, I think we sold it. I, I think I'm gonna, I, I really look forward to watching this movie again and seeing what I get out of the second experience because I think I might I think I might really enjoy it the second experience it'll help knowing think, what you're getting into yeah I think it's one of those things it's one of those weird things where like you said it's your own interpretation of things kind of guiding you along it's, it's one of those things not for I the kids it's a racer head what on earth let's do a kids version <laughs> of a racer head <laughs> Yes, that was probably the pitch. So somebody <laughs> well, said yes. And and then they're all mystified. Why did no one show up? <laughs> <laughs> he has been hailed as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. This summer, Hayao Miyazaki, director of the Academy Award winning Spirited Away, releases his next masterpiece. We've all been waiting for you. The whole world is out of balance. Ponyo, you have to trust me. You're the only one who could save the planet. Do it now, do it! Walt Disney Pictures presents a Studio Ghibli film featuring the voices of Liam Neeson, Noah Cyrus, Frankie Jonas, Tina Fey, Betty White, Clarice Leachman, Lily Tomlin, Matt Damon, and Kate Blanchett. Good luck, Ponyo. What is that? Heo Miyazaki, uh, I think probably one of the greatest living filmmakers that we have, although I think he's largely retired. I'm a big fan of his catalog, which is interesting because I'm not a big anime guy, like I'm not one of these people that grew up in that sort of corner of the entertainment spectrum, but uh, I find there's a richness to his storytelling and to the animation that make all of his movies distinct and stand out. Ponyo is supposedly loosely based on the, you know, fairy tale of the Little Mermaid, but only in that it's it's about as like this the original story as Oh Brother Where Art Thou is to the Iliad, right? It's sort of suggested by the tale of the Little Mermaid. And uh, everybody involved in the story is significantly love uh, young younger. So the love story between them is really that of 
childhood friendship than it is of, you know, passionate love. Like, I'm going to abandon yeah. my entire kingdom of the sea and, and everything that I know because of this boy that I saw once who I think is cute. That, that, that sort of part of the movie or the story is sort of dismissed. But it's not the, that story I feel like Heo is interested in. I think it's the kids themselves. I think that Ponyo and this little boy <laughs> uh, who befriends her are so well rendered as like excitable, sweet, adventurous children that they feel real in a movie that is just full of abstraction and absurdity. I love the underwater world that we're subjected to. I love the lengths that, that this little girl goes to get her friend. This huge flood that she's participating in and chasing him around. The visuals alone, like just on that. You could turn the sound off and watch Ponyo, and I think that you'll probably see the appeal of the... Uh... On a story level, it's a lot more simple and base than we're used to from Miyazaki. I think this one's for younger kids. It's sort of closer to My Neighbor Totoro in that way that uh, I think the adults will still enjoy it, but that he's primarily interested in putting a smile on the face of children. And I think largely he will here. Uh, when this island community is flooded, these two kids, one of the ocean, one of the land world, go on a quest to the find the, this boy's mom who's been stranded at this old age home where she works. Uh, she's got to take care of the old folks, but she's desperately worried about her son. And it's sort of a journey for the parents to be reunited with her kid. And it's a visual spectacle on their way to it. And I guess, if I'm really honest, there's not a lot much more deeper to it beyond that surface story. But I love the characters, and I love how beautiful the movie is. Uh, it might not rank high on the scale of Miyazaki movies, but I'm a Miyazaki fan, so you're not going to hear me say too much shit about it. It's sweet, yeah. and it's charming, and that's all it really wants to be. So I think it's successful on that level. But is it Princess Mononoke? Is it Spirited Away? Well, of course. No, it's not. It's Ponyo. <laughs> Where are you standing on this one? Oh, yeah. Well, I have not seen his other movies. I believe I saw My Neighbor... What's, what's the movie Totoro? called? My Neighbor Totoro. I think I, I've seen that some years ago. The other ones I haven't seen. Well, if you like animation, I encourage you to explore. I need to catch up. Yeah. I do, yeah. Yeah, uh, Ponyo... Um, it's very... Yeah, it's very sweet. You know, everyone's... It's, it's very sweet and whimsical... I liked all the little babies that were kind of always swimming around. I was a little concerned for them because the little there were so many of them <laughs> that one of like a, they could get lost very easily, and there were just there's a whole there was, you know, and, and there was there was priority over Ponyo. Well, you froze up there. The priority over Ponyo. There was a there was no Ponyo had priority. She was like the number one sibling. Right. Right. Otherwise, there were these little babies just swimming around. And, there was Ponyo, um, and then there was a school of other babies. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Fujimoto is sort of the, the Poseidon figure, the king of the sea. And in the English language vo version, he's voiced by Liam Neeson. And he comes off somewhere between, like, 
pissed off and crazy, but is still not presented as a villain for some reason. It seems like everything he does is kind of unnecessarily damaging and uh, unnecessarily aggressive, but the movie never really wants us to hate him or anyone for some reason. <laughs> well, he's presented as kind of a villain when he's first walking around outside the water. Right. He's on land. He, he's kind of like a villain because the, the mother's kind of like, she's not too happy to see him. He's there to take Ponyo away, but then they quickly kind of back off from that. Yeah, I don't think this one is is interested in the conflict. It's more interested in sort of a sweet adventure. <laughs> I love how yeah. excitable the the little fish girl is when she's running on the back of all of the creatures to catch up to the car and trying, and when she like tackles Ponyo, tackles him with a hug, when <laughs> she sees him and knocks him over, like this aggressive childish excitement is a little bit infectious to me. I think that's the vibe that he's tapping into. Uh, he also likes to base the characters' drawings off of real kids that he knows in the real world to try and affect their personality. Um, the other interesting thing about Miyazaki animation is, I'm, I'm a little bit ignorant of exactly, but most animated films do a certain amount of frames per second. And as a rule, Miyazaki's animated films will do two or three times that amount to give a much more smooth look to the animation. It's much more time-consuming and much more expensive to do the animation that way. But the trade-off is, especially in the... This one, he's very focused on, obviously, the oceanic sort of aquatic life. There's... It seems weird to say reality to... There's a reality to the, the sea life in this movie that I don't think comes across in, in cheaper-made animation, I guess is what I'll say. Right. And that fine line between sea creatures that we recognize and see and know to be real, and then the imagination of the animators sort of filling in the other holes. I, I think this is a movie that I would have enjoyed too. You, because you're, you're asking for like some of the other movies, what would you enjoy as a kid? I would have enjoyed this as as like a little kid. It would have been just it would have been so much so much fun to watch those kind of visuals and. Well, it might even work for babies. <laughs> babies might even enjoy just the shapes and the colors and. Well, in the base simplicity, they live on a house on the hill, and the uh, yeah. old age homes on another house on another hill, and they get in this little toy boat and they float from one hill to the yeah. other. It's very yeah. sort of simple, but lovely. <laughs> well, that's a wide. That's a wide audience, huh? From. Beowulf to babies. <laughs> no, I'm saying for this the audience for this for Ponyo, you got babies, you got kids, adults. Yeah, you know, I think that he has done more range. adult movies yeah. like uh, yeah. Spirited Away, which I think if you put a gun to my head and said, "What's your favorite Miyazaki movie?" I would say Spirited Away. Uh, but it's like an Alice in Wonderland type of story where they put a character in a place that I have never seen anything like that. I don't know what's going to be behind any door. Every character is completely new and original. And I've, it's so rare for me because I'm such a movie freak to be watching something where I just don't know what I'm going to get in the next scene, but I know it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Okay, I, I see that. I don't want to put Ponyo on the same level as that, because it just isn't. Like, this is a nice, 
kids escapist fantasy and the, the world needs these and it is beautiful yeah, like yeah. i say like when they're looking down from the boat into the water and you can see the creatures just below the surface and the the layers of the detail i mean it's lovely but it's not profound and i think spirited away and princess mononoke and some of the other ones almost to the risk of turning off the younger audience become more ambitious sort of as a piece of fantasy or, or science fiction or whatever they're the, in, in the, any individual pieces and they get great actors to voice in as like this movie has Kate Blanchett, Matt Damon and Liam Neeson. <laughs> like it's, it's crazy. Everybody wants to be associated with his work. It's not, I, I do. I encourage you if you like animation seek out Miyazaki like I think Ponyo would be somewhere in the middle of his sort of oeuvre for me so if you liked Ponyo consider that there's probably eight or ten movies above that in his selections okay well I'll watch these movies (laughs) Uh, and Tina Fey voices the mother Uh, interestingly I believe it was Tina Fey (laughs) Um, yeah it's Tina Fey yeah she plays she plays Lisa uh, and I think that character is the trickiest in that, like, you'd want to play that mother as just losing her mind with fear and, like, my son is going to be dead. The whole island is drowned. But if she plays that note, it becomes scary and stressful instead of sort of wistful and uh, 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 fun. So it's a measured performance, but I've always been a Tina Fey fan. I kind of like that she's included here. Yes. Yes, I I worked on the very last. Uh, I was an extra. I was, I was an extra in this. No, I guess I guess it was an extra on um, the last filmed episode of the um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, nice. And I looked, and Tina Fey was the producer, producer, creator of that show, and she, was, she usually wasn't on set. I don't know because this was the last show she was she was there. And I just kind of looked over. She gave me this little smile. I was like, "Hey, Tina Fey." And in the midst of all this chaos, two people fall in love. Exactly. <laughs> That's the pitch. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about Ponyo? I feel like I've been brief on it, but it's a it's a pretty simple story and it's pretty easy to please. Like, if you're in the mood for something like uh, childish and and a spectacle, then this is what you got. It's very yeah. It's it's obviously it's well done <laughs> to say the least. It's very good. Yeah. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. Do you like me? Of course I like you. It's a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. What? I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. 
If I hadn't actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to it. Excuse me, pardon me. Don Bluth is the director of The Secret of Nim, which came out in 1982. He and a bunch of the animators had used to work for Disney, but they broke off and tried to make their own sort of competitive brand with Disney. And obviously it didn't play out as Disney continues to slowly close its white-gloved hand over the world. <laughs> but uh, as a little kid, I remember really liking The Secret of Nim, but not fully understanding it. I found it to be a little bit over my head at things. And um, I, I found watching it now, my memory of the movie was quite different. I thought that all of the creatures in the story had been experimented on in this medical center and escaped, and that's why they were hyper-intelligent mice. But no, upon watching it this time, only some of the mice are that way. These are anthropomorphic animals because in it's just another one of those animated movies where animals talk. But some of them have been experimented on and have become hyper-intelligent, and it's sort of led to uh, a society of mice and rats living close to this NIM, which, spoilers, is the National Institute for Mental Health, which is, again, one of the things that flew right over my head as a kid. It's a much darker movie in that it's the first half of the movie deals with a, a, a sweet mum mouse trying to save her bedridden, what seems like ready-to-die son from pneumonia and not getting a lot of help by the colorful characters around her. And then the second half, increasingly scary spectacle of this power struggle and the whole rat culture. Uh, there's also a really fucked up creepy owl. That's the thing that I remembered as a little kid that really scared me. And in the context of the movie, the owl's not even an, uh, a villain necessarily. He's kind of a neutral character. He does eat mice because he's an owl, <laughs> but uh, he's also yeah. wise and he also talks to the other mice and is helpful on some occasions. But I think this is one of those movies that's asking quite a lot of its audience, especially in the knowing the fact that a lot of the audience is going to be in the single-digit age category. It is for this reason that I think Secret of Nim sort of occupied a large portion of my imagination for a long time. Like, it's it's difficult subject matter, and the stakes are high, and mice and rats have sword fights, and people die. The stakes are real, and the, not that people don't die, I guess, in in other Disney movies, but there's something more visceral about The Secret of Nim. I felt like as a kid they were taking me seriously <laughs> with this movie, right. and I appreciated that. And generally speaking, I do appreciate a movie that does take uh, take seriously the subject no matter who they're talking to so yes the movie mostly works but i think it works better when you're of the old enough to kind of get it it might be better for like the 10 to 14 year old range than the under 10 range i guess is what i'm slowly coming around to saying it did okay and i believe it was pg uh, it was it was not a G-rated one, but it was before they'd come out with the PG-13 rating, so it might have been closer to a PG-13 if that rating had existed at the time. Between, I believe it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, Hollywood decided that 
or maybe Poltergeist, Hollywood decided there needed to be another rating between PG and R, and then PG-13 happened. But I don't believe that it existed for this movie. But, yeah, that probably would have been the appropriate call in the end of things. Do I like The Secret of Nim after all of that? Yes, I do. I mean... You can see the Disney influence. There, there's a Dom DeLuise-voiced crow who's like a definitely goofy comic relief in an atmosphere that doesn't seem to be looking for or wanting goofy comic relief. But if it had gone too far to the side, like even further into the darkness, then maybe we would be talking about a bird boy of the 80s. <laughs> so, Right. I like bad. it. It's a cool spectacle and an adventure, but... I can appreciate it more as an adult in a way I don't think I was capable of appreciating it as a kid. That's where I start. Okay. I did see it when I was a kid. This is this along with the last unicorn were mm. the ones I had seen. Um, I was on HBO or something like that. And I, I don't, it didn't make much of an impact on me. I, I believe I did enjoy it on some level, but I, but, but watching it recently, I, I enjoyed it. Oh, I thought the characters were uh, strong characters. Yeah. I like and, the uh, design, for yeah. sure. They they all have yeah, their thought... specific physicalities. It's not just another mouse that's a different color. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought that the... Um, I thought that the animation was pretty good. It had a good... I think of a, can't think of an example of it, but there was just this one, one rat that was the... I'm trying to remember his name here, but... Uh... Nicodemus was the good old mouse. Um, Jenner? No, there's someone named Jenner. Right. Uh, Not Jeremy, that was Dom DeLuise. Yes. Mrs. Brisby is their main character. Mrs. Brisby is Elizabeth Hartman. The kids were Shannon Doherty and Will Wheaton. That's right, yes. This was way before they were on anything. Oh yeah, they were they were, kids, I guess. They were legitimately yeah. children when they were recording these. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like that the kids that that sound and act like kids in in movies, especially in kids movies. Hollywood and, and animated movies like to have little kids that are like way too smart and way too world wise for their age and experience level. So, right. And sometimes having a character like that works, but generally speaking, I prefer kids that act and sound like kids and that yeah, does yeah the strange yeah i would say this movie i was gonna say to this movie much like bird boy it does take big swings it's just a little more successful <laughs> maybe in the way it you know it, it kind of hit, hits the mark but it was there was definitely some high stakes here there were definitely there was scary stuff like as you said one of her kids seemed to be uh at death's door yeah, and they had to move that. They had to move their home, or else the tractor was going to plow off through and crush them. Yeah, that's disturbing. So she's got to somehow magically heal her son well enough that he can move, or find a way to weather the <laughs> destruction of the home while saving his life. And then you have the power dynamic of the rats and the whole sort of sub kingdom, and you know, that's the stuff that Paul. And you have, yeah. Yeah, I didn't quite connect with that as well as when I was a kid. I just sort of got the adventure part of it. There's a story, when we get the back history of the mice that are caught and experimented on, it's a weird, I guess, it's inconsistent, man. This movie's fake. But uh, 
they show these people right. catching these rats in the back alley. And the rats and mice just look like rats and mice. They're not wearing clothes. They're not standing on their hind legs. And they're not talking to each other. They're squeaking and running on all fours like mice. And then they're caught and experimented on. And then we see them as a more traditional sort of Disney-esque animated animal figure. But it's not just the mice that are experimented on that have this affectation right it's not that they taught everyone else to speak and and have this culture it's just so why were they originally shown to be quote normal mice and rats i guess would be my question uh yeah yeah i understand it's 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 inconsistent like why is the why is the bird also have a yeah personality and because discuss things in that way my memory of the movie is more interesting than the actual movie because i thought a bunch of mice escaped from the facility and that's why they were smart and that's why this little society had managed to be and that's why they're able to talk to the yeah. owl instead of just being eaten by the owl and i don't know if there's a source material that would iron this out for me but that's actually kind of really interesting to me and it's almost too bad it seems like a missed opportunity here well, I even thought when they when they reached that point, because obviously I didn't remember that, but when I saw that the mice had had, you know, scientific experiments, that's why they were smart mice. I thought, well, that's not, is that really even necessary? Like, I was going along with the fact that mice are, yeah. you, know, you know, have all this stuff happening. That's like, a, you, don't, you don't even have to have a reason. No, like, uh, again, speaking of traumatic animated movies, when I was a kid, I used to watch Watership Down all the time. Everybody could talk in Watership Down, except for dogs. For some reason, dogs just behaved like dogs. <laughs> so, <laughs> strange. <laughs> this movie's fake, man, Kurt. This I don't, Secret of Nim, man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. That was inconsistent. I wasn't really bothered by it. I just didn't think it was necessary that they were being experimented on. No, if you're already an animated talking animal movie, you know, you don't have to overburden yeah. yourself with explaining right, things. Fine. <laughs> yeah. They don't have to justify it. Yeah. We'll go We've with seen you. animals. Oh, as if Miss yes, exactly. Brisby could talk, you guys. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mice don't talk. I'm turning this off. Yeah. Fake. <laughs> I think that they did that in an effort to make them more distinct from Disney. Yeah, it was about talking animals, but this one has a deeper, darker story than Disney would uh, typically have. Maybe they're also making a statement also. You should experiment on animals or else they'll start talking. (laughs) (laughs) Disney was going through the dark times in the 80s where their movies were starting to flop, and I feel like... uh, the Black Cauldron and some of the weird darker corners of uh, the 80s. Again, I don't know this. I'm just sort of pulling it out of my head. It's like, well, they all of a sudden had real competition in the animation field. So if uh, if oh. Don Bluth is going dark, well, we better go dark too. <laughs> so. It also may have gotten them to kick into gear. Like we can't, you know, had enough of that. Enough of the rescuers. Well, and get the Little Mermaid out here. By the time they get to the end of the '80s, they get Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and The Lion King, and uh, yeah. that's pretty much all that's she it. wrote. Not that Don Bluth and his, you know, uh, other creative people didn't make more movies, but they've never been really realistically competitive with 
uh, with Disney. No. This movie and The Land Before Time are the two ones that people like remember, but there's probably been a half a dozen at least that didn't win place or show, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm trying to see what other ones they did. An American Tale. That's right. All Dogs all Go to dog. Heaven. Just go to Heaven. Yeah. yeah. So I guess we've heard of them. I remember... <laughs> I was going to say, I remember the, the director, Tim Burton, he worked on um, some of those Disney movies during that week period. And I, I know he, he, he broke himself off because he's like, I don't want to spend a year of my life working on The Fox and the Hound. Right. <laughs> hey, man, I like The Fox and the Hound. Screw you. <laughs> you might. When I was a kid, I went to see The Rescuers. I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't during the, the Disney heyday. But That's right. I got something out of it. Yeah. Anyway, we've stopped talking about The Secret of Nim. <laughs> I... I I think it's worth your time. I think it's, again, it's definitely of our era from the 80s, but uh, yeah. it's competitive with the Disney of that era. I don't know that it's competitive with the Disney of today or of, like, the golden age, as it were, but um, it's an interesting, kind of dark kids movie, and uh, I think it's it's hold, held up quite well. I think so. Thank you so much for being here. We made this happen. It was months to cook this episode, but here we are. I think we've come through. And uh, thank you for choosing this list. It's a little bit uh, off the beaten path from my regular selections. And I kind of needed this one. I kind of needed the escape and the spectacle of this. So it turned out to be well-timed. Thank you for that. What was your least favorite of these six animated fantasies and why? Well, this was this was hard ranking because they're really. I did enjoy all these movies, and I, 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 and they're all very different. Very. And I appreciate appreciate all what they have to give, but I'm giving, giving the last uh, ranking to the last unicorn. Okay. That's it. That's all. You don't want to bet. Justify it. <laughs> well, do I just I have to justify it? <laughs> it's just because it's. Um, I'm judging it based on. A lot of this, I'm, I'm considering the, the, the animation, kind of like the, you know, whether I whether I visually enjoyed it, kind of like the, the innovation of it. And the last unicorn, I, I did enjoy it. Like I said, I enjoyed all these movies. So right. it, was, it was hard to make, make this ranking. But as I said, some of it was like animation didn't. It was a little bit cheaper, it seemed, and didn't really blow me away with that. It didn't. It didn't have a distinct. Distinct images like some of these other movies had. Fair enough. Well, well but I did well, definitely like the, the, the characters and enjoyed it, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of it. But that's that's where it landed. Fair enough. What about fifth place then? Well, I gave that to Ponyo, and I enjoy Ponyo. I don't know what I don't know what to say because I did enjoy all these movies and visually it's good. But I guess my only complaint was just watching it. I guess watching it as an adult, it was a little, maybe a little on the slower slower side. It's it's a pretty basic, simple story by Miyazaki Standal for sure. Yeah, yeah. In fourth position, fourth I had 
which I, which I did enjoy as an experiment. I just, I also thought it was kind of, um, good to, I haven't, I believe I studied or read Beowulf years ago. So it was interesting to kind of re- revisit that story. I know they presented it a different way. Um, a lot of the actors in it, I enjoy like Malkovich and of course I love, uh, Crispin Glover. Yeah. So it was, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I had the ex- experience of watching that. Beowulf and fourth. Yeah, it's fourth. Sweet. Third. Third, I've got The Secret of Nim. And we, we just discussed that. Yeah, I, it, I enjoyed Secret of Nim. I like the characters, like where it went. It was definitely Disney-esque, I guess, in some ways. Um, yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot there to like. and Took some swings there. <laughs> some risks. Which brings us to the top and then two. two. Two is Kubo and Two Strings. Enjoyed that, as we've talked about. Visually, it's wonderful, and it's got a lot. It's got a lot going for it. And one I gave to Bird Boy. Wow. The Forgotten Children. I gave one because I. This is the movie that I want to watch again. Out of all these, I'm probably not going to re- like revisit Be- Beowulf. Yeah. Movie is. Bird Boy for the Forgotten Children. I always enjoy when there's something really weird that gets itself out there. It just doesn't happen very often. It just it, because this is what happens when they finally they put something like that out, and nobody want, know, knows what to make of it. Nobody knows how to market it. it. Never does well. So a weird movie makes it out there every once in a while. Well, I there's a famous exchange between a. a director i can't remember their names but it doesn't really matter to the moral of the story the two famous directors are talking to each other and one says i've just spent 15 million dollars on a movie about a dream within the dream and the other director said you just lost 15 million dollars <laughs> uh i'm gonna start my list by saying that i basically agree with you that i recommend all of these movies if you like animation and you like fantasy they're movies that are worthy of your time. There's nothing here that's a complete write-off. But something had to be at the bottom and something had to be at the top. Um, and we're going to start off in agreement. To my own surprise, I put The Last Unicorn in sixth place. Despite how much I loved it as a kid, the second half of the movie kind of felt long and weighed down by uh, a less interesting romance. And all of a sudden, just song after song in a row. I don't mind it. But until this point, it had been a movie with songs, and the second half almost became a musical, so I took some points away. In fifth place, The Uncanny Valley of Beowulf. I love how over-the-top and aggressively aggressive the movie is. Like, I, I-, I like this sort of body, bring-me-another-beer-wench sort of vibe that they kind of went for <laughs> uh, and embraced, and so I appreciate it, but... You can tell that it's an experiment and that its animation has has aged. So this is where I guess our biggest disagreement, all the way in fourth place, is where I ended up putting Bird Boy and the Forgotten Children. Mainly because I have a hard time just closing my hand over what the hell this whole movie is about. It is almost too ambitious, I think a person could say. It's it's about everything. It's about so much that it might be about nothing. <laughs> but... 
it puts enough hooks in me that I keep on wanting to go back and find out what more I can pull from it or if it is in fact solvable. And I do think that's a question. Well, is it a solvable picture? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, maybe they realized they had to get it all in there. Maybe they realized they had to put all of it in there? Is that what you said? No, they had one shot at making a movie. So right. any idea they had, so they, they had to put it all in there. So. All right. We're, we're, we're probably not going to make any money off of this, so let's not leave anything unsaid. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> on the table. In third place, with some deliberation, I put Ponyo. Uh, it's uncomfortable for me to put a Miyazaki film as low as three, because I am a fan. But I do think this sort of comfortably fits in one of his more kid-oriented films. And that's not a demerit against it. Kids need movies, too. And uh, I really appreciate it as a parent of two boys when, when they were younger. It really sucked to have to sit through something. Like, I remember the boys really wanted to watch The Chipmunks, and I had to squirm my way through the Chipmunk movie. <laughs> if they want to watch a Miyazaki movie, I was going to be all smiles every time. But it's not essential Miyazaki. Uh, it's, it's just really solid Miyazaki. Second place, The Ambitious and Dark Secret of Nim. Um... I appreciate that they were trying a tougher story on a kid's audience, and I appreciate them kind of rubbing Disney's nose in the poop for a little while. They only did it for a couple of years, but they did do it. <laughs> no, you aren't the only business in town, Disney, and other people can tell stories to kids without talking down to them. Um, it's really easy to get behind you know, Mrs. Brisby and her quest to save her son, and uh, there are memorable characters in it. It's a lot of fun. Kubo and the Two Strings I'm putting at number one just because I think it is, even with Miyazaki on the list, the most beautiful picture of the list. It is absolutely stunning to watch. You, It's great to watch with the sound on, but you could just play music and look at it. It stands very strongly. It's, it's a distinct, fairly original story with familiar plot beats, but not familiar characters and, and uh, stakes that you can get behind. And uh, great for adults and for kids. And it almost doesn't feel necessarily like it was made for kids. It was just made for people who like to be entertained. To be fair, I have a real soft spot for stop-motion animation. It might have given it a bit of an edge, but Kubo's coming out on top this week. Okay. Close. Okay. Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close, yeah. I kind of like that you put Bird Boy as number one. I was I, I, of the list. I thought it was the one that potentially you could react badly to. So here, yeah. here. No, I. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy it. Like I said, I want to give it a. I, I think. I think. Uh, as I said, my second viewing, I may enjoy it even more. Sweet. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Kurt. I love that you did another episode of Rank and Review. I'm going to encourage all of the people who's ears are receiving my voice right now to check out a lifetime of hallmark all the information you need on quality lifetime and hallmark movies <laughs> is there anything you'd like to say to the internet before we sign off for the we're on all sorts of platforms you're on every I platform think that's it i, I yeah pod beam apple or on all that stuff but yeah uh, um no but this was a pleasure it was great to be back on the show 
and uh, yeah, Maybe we can make make it happen again sometime. I know this took, took months and months to. <laughs> I uh, will bug you. I'll give you a little bit of a recess, but I'll bug you yeah. again. But I do not want to be a source of stress in your life, man. That's not my. That's no, not, not my job. No, I enjoy this. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Thanks so much, and we'll talk to Kurt again. So another fun-filled episode of Rank and Review comes to a close. Big thank you to Kurt for being here. Make sure you check out his podcast, Lifetime of Hallmark, where they review Lifetime and Hallmark movies, much to our enjoyment. And uh, also check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, hosted by my friend Jason Dubray, and The Terror Table, the local podcast to me. They actually get really uh, famous productive guests on their shows and is a a really good thing to feed your ears and brains with. Rank and Review drops every other Wednesday. This is your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons saying thank you so much for listening and make sure you value everybody around you and take care of yourself and them because sometimes storms break out and you just, you're not prepared for them. So... Prepare for the storm before it arrives, because sometimes the storm arrives. And uh, sometimes animated fantasy can help you escape from them, if only briefly. We'll see you every other Wednesday.